0: Amen. Thank you, Sam and the rest of the music team for leading us in worship through song. Come and worship a holy God. What does it look like to worship our holy God? What does that look like? What does that feel like? What should we do if we recognize the holiness of God And we want to worship him, reverence him, be in awe of him the way that we should in response to him being the creator and us being the creatures. What does it look like to worship God as king? We've been studying the gospel of Mark. We've been seeing Jesus as king Every single Lord's Day, we've been seeing Christ the King. But this morning, we're going to begin, Mark's going to begin kind of prodding our hearts with the question, what are you doing in response to seeing Jesus as King? You know He's King, what are you doing in response to that? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, as you're turning there, just a a quick review for those of you maybe who haven't been here in our study of Mark. Mark is writing, it's really Peter's gospel through Mark's pen. Peter is the eyewitness testimony that Mark is getting all of his information about and from. And Mark is writing to prove Jesus is the King, He is the Messiah, He is the Christ. But he's a different king than we thought he was going to be. He's the suffering servant. He's the king who's going to come and win by dying, not by killing, not by conquering. He will conquer by being conquered. And so if we're going to ask, okay, Mark, prove to us that Jesus is king. The first question that a good Jewish person would ask is, where is the Messiah's forerunner? If he is the king, if he's the Messiah, where is his forerunner? And that's why Mark starts his gospel with John the Baptist. John is the forerunner. He is the herald. Second question would be, where's the coronation? When was the inauguration of the kingdom? When was the king coronated as king publicly for all to see? That would be the baptism. That's why Mark goes to the baptism. That's why Mark shows us at the baptism. The father says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And he receives the theocratic anointing of the Holy Spirit. Now you will be ushered into ministry in a public sense. Here is the king. Okay, if he is the king, then he needs to conquer. He needs to have authority over his enemy, One of the main enemies would be the devil himself. And so that's the first place that the Holy Spirit thrusts Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And Jesus succeeds in obeying his father perfectly. Then we would ask the question, okay, if he is king, where is his kingdom? And who are the citizens of this kingdom? And that's what we looked at last Lord's Day. Jesus preaches the kingdom is here. It's an already not yet. It's a physical and a spiritual And the citizens are those who would obey the command to come and follow me. He said that to four men who were by the Sea of Galilee, come follow me and I will make you fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. He has authority because he is king. And because he is king, he reigns in authority over you and me. And the question is, What do we do with that authority? What do we do with the authority of Christ? We know that he is king, but what do we do with his kingship over us? My family had the privilege of going to the Reagan Library last month, and it was absolutely amazing. There are two exhibits. There's the Reagan Library portion, and there was an Auschwitz exhibit that was just stunning and truly awe-inspiring. When we went to the Reagan Library portion, we went through the exhibits, uh, my kids were catching on very quickly that if you remember certain facts that the docents are saying, and then you repeat them to other docents as you go through, you will impress them. And so uh, we went through the Oval Office replica. We saw the jelly beans that Ronald Reagan had on his Oval Office desk uh, because he was trying to quit smoking and, and uh, he used jelly beans to help him whenever he wanted a cigarette. He would eat jelly beans. And we found out that his favorite flavor was black licorice. And my kids didn't forget that. Neither did I, apparently. So going through the remainder of this uh, exhibit, whenever we would see jelly beans, my kids, and specifically Ethan, because he wanted to make the docents very proud of him, he would say, oh, and uh, the black licorice jelly bean was Ronald Reagan's favorite jelly bean flavor. And they would say so sweetly, that's amazing. I can't believe you know that. I remember one docent said, You know, you could lead this trip. You could do this. And we giggled, we laughed, and it was really sweet. My son just had a big smile on his face. But I thought, just imagine that. Imagine Ethan leading these exhibits. What would he say? As the authority on Ronald Reagan, he'd walk into a room, you'd see visitors come in, and they'd say, Oh, what's this? And he'd go, This is Ronald Reagan. What's this? That's a picture of Ronald Reagan. (laughs) What's happening here? That's President Ronald Reagan talking to some guys. What's this over here? Ronald Reagan's favorite flavor of jelly bean. (laughs) Like that's all he would ever do the whole time. I wonder when we look at Jesus's authority... And we start to gain certain knowledge, certain facts about the Bible, certain wisdom from the scriptures. I wonder if we think, you know what, Jesus, you are the expert, you are the authority, but I'm learning and I've got this and I can lead people. I'm okay. I've got the knowledge. I've got the scriptures. I can lead people. Your authority is great, but I can kind of take it from here. We do this with God a lot. We question his authority. We wrestle with his authority, with his command over our lives. And the reality is every single one of us has an authority that we live by and according to. For some of us, it's, Our emotions. However we feel about a certain thing is what will lead us to do something. That is the reigning authority. We live according to the way that we feel. For some of us, it's reason. If this doesn't make sense to my mind, I won't do it because I have to understand it intellectually. And it's reason. For others, it's experience. I need to experience this for myself, learn from my experience. And therefore, I can go on with wisdom in the future because of what I've experienced. For some of us, it's just blatant self. Whatever I want to do, I am the authority. I reign supreme. What is your authority this morning? Maybe better asked, who is your authority? For believers, Jesus Christ and his authoritative word is our only authority. And if that seems a little drastic... Maybe we would ask the question, why would Jesus's authority in our lives, over our lives, be something that we should joyfully submit to? And this morning, Mark is going to give us two very clear reasons why we should submit joyfully and gladly to the authority of Jesus. Let's read these verses together. We are in Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. They went into Capernaum. And immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus entered the synagogue and began to teach. And they were amazed at his teaching because he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Just then there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit and he cried out saying, what business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him saying, Be quiet and come out of him. Throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. And they were all amazed. So that they debated among themselves saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately the news about him spread everywhere into all the surrounding district of Galilee. These are the words of our gracious and holy God, and he has graciously allowed us to read them, to hear them, and now to study them. So let's pray and ask that God would write their truths on our hearts this morning. Father, we thank you for this glimpse into the life of our Savior. We thank you for this picture of the authority of our King. And we want to ask as we come before you and as we ask every Lord's day that you, Holy Spirit, graciously would open our eyes to see so that we would not be like the Pharisees who while seeing, they didn't see, while hearing, they didn't hear. We want our eyes to be opened, our ears to be opened, our hearts to be receptive. We want to love Christ. So Father, please be gracious to us. Show us Jesus. And may we, because of our time staring at him this morning, may we all the more joyfully and gladly submit ourselves to him. He is so worthy of every affection that we have. So God, please show us Christ. We pray it in his name. Amen. Why should we submit Jesus' authority in our lives. Why should we submit to him as king? He is king and he has authority, but why should we submit ourselves to him? Two reasons that you can see, two very clear uh, episodes, if you will, that are happening in the synagogue. Number one, the first reason is that we should submit ourselves to Jesus as king. We should joyfully submit ourselves to his authority. Number one is because of his authoritative teaching, because of his authoritative teaching. This is verses 21 and 22. And by the way, verses 21 through 34 deals with one full day. It's kind of like a day in the life of our Savior. It's one full day. We get to walk with Jesus and experience everything that he's doing. And we get to experience why he's doing it. And we get to walk with him. So we'll split this day up into a couple sermons. But verses 21 through 34 is one full day. The day begins, verse 21, when Jesus and his disciples go into Capernaum, they go into Capernaum. Now Capernaum, if you have a map, Sea of Galilee, big circle on the top northern part of Israel, Capernaum's on the northern uh, side of the Sea of Galilee. And they moved, Jesus moved from Nazareth over to Capernaum and really established Capernaum as his home base as his headquarters. Uh, Capernaum comes from the Hebrew word, two Hebrew words, Kephar and Nahum, which means the village of Nahum. So this could be all the way back to the Old Testament prophet Nahum. This could be where he was uh, living. And so this is going to become Jesus's home base of operation for three main reasons. He's going to move from Nazareth to Capernaum for three main reasons. Number one, Capernaum is a a hub city. There's a lot of roads going into it. We said last Lord's Day that the Sea of Galilee had over 16 different ports for fishing and for commerce. There were a lot of different trade routes that would find their way through and into Capernaum. And if Jesus is wanting to get a message to the nations, he's got to go to Capernaum to a place that has a lot of roads going into other different locations. Nazareth would not be a good location to set up a home base if you're trying to get the message of the gospel into the world because Nazareth, for all intents and purposes, is a cul-de-sac. Even today, if you go to Israel, you have to drive up in a bus to go visit Nazareth and just turn around and come back down uh, the little mountainside. So Nazareth is a small city, small little village, not a good place if you're going to try and make this a worldwide, worldwide known gospel message. Second reason, speaking of Nazareth, Second reason that Jesus moved to Capernaum is that Jesus had been rejected in Nazareth earlier. This is Luke chapter four. You remember Jesus preaches in the synagogue in Nazareth in his hometown. And as he's preaching, he's saying, I came as Messiah, not just to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. And that gets them all riled up. They want to kill him. So they try to throw him off of the cliff in Nazareth. And he says, okay, I probably am not gonna be able to stay here anymore if you're trying to kill me. So he moves to Capernaum. The third reason why he's moving to Capernaum is because it's a fulfillment of prophecy. You can just write this down. We don't have time to go there, but Matthew chapter four, verses 12 through 16, details a prophecy from Isaiah nine, where Jesus is prophesied, the Messiah is prophesied to go, to move from Nazareth, which is in Zebulun. That's what uh, Isaiah nine talks about, that the Messiah will be in Zebulun and will move over to Naphtali, and Capernaum is in Naphtali. So it's a fulfillment of prophecy. So There's a lot going on when it says, they went into Capernaum. They moved there. They actually uh, probably lived in Peter's mother-in-law's house, which by the way, this is fascinating. Peter's mother-in-law's house that we're going to look at next Lord's Day, Lord willing. uh, That house has been found. We know where that house is in Capernaum. We've dug that house up. We've also dug up the synagogue that Jesus is going to be teaching in. The very synagogue that he teaches in in this passage, we know where it is. We've seen it. We've walked through where it is so those two locations we found, we know where they are in Israel today. So they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath, Jesus enters with his disciples into the synagogue. Now, just a word on synagogues. We don't really know what synagogues are from the Old Testament. You don't see synagogues in the Old Testament. They just pop up as a new thing in the New Testament. Why? Well, remember that intertestamental period, even what we studied in the book of Daniel, you have the deportation of Israel. The Jews go into a different location. They're away from their temple. They're away from their land, away from Jerusalem, away from their temple. And therefore, they still want to worship, but they can't worship the, the way that they're supposed to in the temple. You can't sacrifice without a temple, but they still want to worship. So how do, how do they do that? They make up this idea of synagogues, which are kind of Jewish churches, if you will. It's a location you had to have that their tradition said that you had to have um, no fewer than 10 males to form a synagogue. So 10 people that were over the age, 10 males that were over the age of 13 years old, they could start a synagogue together. And so synagogues started popping up all over the land. But it became a very political issue in Jesus' day. Because the Pharisees owned the synagogues and the Sadducees owned the temple. Remember when Rome conquered Israel? Rome conquered Israel, said, you are going to be our slaves. You're going to be our servants. We own you now, but we kind of want you to enjoy your stay in the Roman empire. So we're just going to ask a couple things. If you please, number one, pay taxes and please, number two, don't fight against us. If you do those two things, you'll be happy. We'll have a great relationship. And they wanted to have a great relationship with the the new people that were involved in their empire by saying, you know what? Go ahead and have your puppet religions. Go ahead and have your puppet kings. Remember King Herod, right? He's a Jewish man. He's half Jewish man and he's king over Israel, but he's not really king. He's a puppet king because Caesar's king. Caesar said, you know what? Go ahead and have your fake political regime. We don't really care. I'm gonna send my governor, Pontius Pilate. He's gonna control the land but go ahead and feel like you can do your voting, feel like you can do your politics, that's fine. So because there was kind of a a parasitic relationship where Rome was trying to work with these um, Jewish people that were saying, you know, we'll, we'll work with you, give us a political say, give us some aspect of fame and fortune here. The Sadducees said as a whole, they kind of grew into this role. They said, you know, we'll play that game. They were the more liberal, theologically minded people. They said, we'll play the game. We'll go ahead and uh, be a part of the Roman Empire. We'll do whatever you ask us to do as long as you help us. And that's the temple. We'll get into Jesus cleansing the temple. That's one of the reasons why he cleansed the temple because the Jews were working with the Romans to get the Romans money and the Jews rich as well. And so the Sadducees owned the temple. Jesus goes to the temple at the very beginning of his earthly ministry and cleanses it. This is the beginning of the book of John. And once he does that, he ticks off the Sadducees. They're very angry at him because they own and control and operate the temple. And the Pharisees are looking at Jesus going, we like this guy. He he is getting after the, the enemies that we have. These Sadducees who are super hypocritical and we don't like them. We like this Messiah guy. And Jesus turns right around and goes to all the synagogues that the Pharisees owned and operated and he started doing things in their synagogues that would took off the Pharisees. And that's why at the end of Jesus's earthly ministry, once he gets back into Jerusalem to cleanse the temple a second time, every religious leader's mad at him. He's got them all very frustrated. So, synagogues, they pop up as these little mini Jewish churches. And the Pharisees owned and operated them. And we're going to see time and time again, Jesus running into the Pharisees and butting heads with them. Jesus goes into the synagogue. As was his custom, you'll see that phrase a lot in the Gospels. Jesus goes, as was his custom. He would go volitionally, not emotionally. I think this is just so helpful to us. If you go to church on the basis of your emotions, your attendance will be really sparse at best. We don't go to church based off of how we feel because we've had a very long week and we're exhausted and we wake up on Sunday mornings feeling like we got hit by a a truck, right? We don't go to church because of the way that we feel. We go to church not on the basis of our emotions. We go to church on the basis of the determination and intentionality and volition of our will. This is what we must do. And if you do that, if you determine in your heart as is your custom to always be there, then you'll be there whenever the doors are open. That's what Jesus is doing. And he's a visiting rabbi. His hometown is Nazareth. He had preached there. They attempted to throw him off the cliff when he did preach there. But he's teaching here as a visiting rabbi in Capernaum, in the synagogue in Capernaum. And no one, no one is prepared for what's about to happen. No one could see this coming. And personally, I just feel sorry for whoever the next rabbi is, the next Sabbath, who's going to have to come in and speak after this event happens. He teaches, verse 22, and they were amazed at his teaching. They were amazed at his teaching. He opens the scriptures and he teaches, and the response is amazement. That word, amaze, it's two Greek words put together. It's struck and out. It's literally to be struck out of your mind. In our vernacular, we'd say, be blown away, blown out of your mind. Like, this is absolutely shocking, One commentator says the best translation for this word is thunderstruck. It means to be hit with a sense of panic, awe, fear even, shock, a sense of uneasiness because you don't know what to make of this. You know that this is something incredible, but you don't know what to make of it. And I love that Mark doesn't give us the content of Jesus' teaching. He just says he taught. He only shows us the teacher and the response. No content here. Why were the people amazed? They were amazed at his teaching because, verse 22, he was teaching them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Those are the Pharisees. Not as the religious leaders. He was different in his teaching. What does that mean that he taught with authority, not like the scribes? It means a number of things but at least three, we'll, we'll give three this morning. It means at least three things. What does it mean that Jesus taught with authority, not like the scribes? Number one, it means that Jesus did not appeal to authority outside himself. He didn't appeal to authority outside of himself. When he taught, he was the authority, he is the authority. The Pharisees, when they would teach, they were in bondage to quotation marks. They were always quoting tradition. I don't have an original thought, It's just tradition. It's just these people said it and we're doing it. They also added so much to the scriptures. The the Torah, the passing down of the law that was written down by God, given to Moses, that's the Torah. But the Jews also believe in something called the Mishnah, which the Mishnah, they would believe is the oral Torah. They believe that something was given verbally by God to Moses that Moses didn't write down immediately, but he passed it down through speaking. That's the Mishnah. So you've got the Torah, and then you've got the Mishnah, and then that was finally written down. The Mishnah was finally written down, and then rabbis would give commentary about the Mishnah, and they'd write it next to the Mishnah, and that commentary was called Gemara. And so the Gemara and the Mishnah put together is what you would know, we all know, is the Talmud. That's all tradition. That's not scripture. That's all tradition. And that's what the Pharisees would preach from. They would preach from opinions of other people and not from scripture itself. And then here comes this man who says, you've heard it said, but I say to you, I'm the authority. There's no, as one rabbi said it, Jesus is the authority. And so this is stunning to people because almost a little bit brash that this man is coming in saying, I know more than the Pharisees. I don't need to go to tradition. I'm throwing tradition away. I'm going to the scriptures and I am the authority of the scriptures. A second reason why this would have been shocking, why the people were amazed by Jesus is number two, Jesus didn't preach for wrong reasons. Jesus wasn't preaching and teaching for wrong reasons. And this would have been known and felt. I think We've all had that experience where you're sitting in the congregation, hearing somebody preach. And as they preach, you have that sense of, if I wasn't here, if no one was here, this person would still be preaching because they're only preaching because they want to hear themselves speak. You can feel love from a preacher. You can feel that, yes, I love the scriptures, but I love you and I want to communicate the scriptures to you because I care about you. You can feel that. And I think it had been decades since anyone in this synagogue had felt that. The Pharisees would get up and they'd preach to make themselves look good and make everyone else in the congregation feel bad. They would use the scriptures as a weapon to hurt others. They were completely intolerant of the weakness of others. They were so prideful and prideful preachers are dangerous, dangerous men. The Pharisees were so puffed up in their estimation of themselves. I don't know if you've ever shared the gospel with somebody who tells you, you know, that's great, but you don't know what I've done. And I don't think Jesus could love me. You ever shared the gospel with somebody who thinks I am so bad, I don't even know if I can be saved. Those are some of my favorite moments in sharing the gospel. Because you're able to just take the love of Christ and give it to them. The Pharisees are the exact opposite. The Pharisees say, I don't need saving. I'm awesome. Look at me. I don't need saving. Just imagine somebody like that, getting up, opening the Bible and teaching you. That'd be horrendous. And that's what these people have experienced Sabbath after Sabbath after Sabbath. And here comes Jesus, a man with authority. He's not going to the tradition of other people. He's speaking with authority, but he's also speaking humbly, gentle, lowly, loving, compassionately. It's going to make you a little uneasy. Who is this man? What's going on? A third reason why Jesus spoke differently with authority than the Pharisees. Another reason why everyone was amazed was because Jesus' teaching would actually penetrate your soul. Jesus' teaching would penetrate your soul. Jesus didn't simply speak about God. He spoke as God. He taught with authority because he was the author. Mark uses the term authority here for the very first time in his gospel. And the word literally means out of Original, out of original things, out of original stuff. It comes from the same word, the root word is author. Mark is showing us that Jesus taught about life with original rather than derived authority. Not just clarifying something that the people already knew or just interpreting scriptures the way that everyone had already heard. He's preaching in such a way that his listeners know He's explaining the very story of their lives to them. And Mark shows us their response. They're amazed. They're amazed. What's your response when you hear the words of Christ? How do you respond when he speaks? Are you amazed like these people? Or do you turn to other authority? Do you say that's really great for them, that's good for Jesus, but... I'll take it and then I'll put something else next to it. Some other authority. Maybe it's tradition. Maybe it's reason. Maybe it's experience. Jesus's words go forth. Authoritative teaching over the crowd in such a way where they are blown away. And their description of him is summed up in that one word, authority. He has authority. And instantly, that authority in this synagogue is challenged. That leads us to the second reason why we should submit gladly, joyfully to the authority of Christ. Not only because of his authoritative teaching, but number two, because of his authoritative command. His authoritative command over everything, but specifically here, his authoritative command over demonic activity. His authority is instantly challenged in verse 23, when a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit cries out. This is a demon. An unclean spirit is a demon We know several things about demons from the Bible. Revelation 12 says that a third of the angels fell with Satan. Satan is an angel. He's a created being. And demons are fallen angels. And so a third of all of the angels, uh, back when Satan chose to rebel against God, a third of the angels said, we'll be with you, Satan. We'll fight against God. We'll rebel as well. And they fell. We're also told in the scripture that there are demons that are free to roam around the earth right now. We're told that in Revelation 9 that there will be demons that will be freed during the tribulation period to oppress and harass people. We're also told that there are certain demons in 2 Peter chapter 2 and Jude 6 that are not allowed to come out of their captivity. They're confined now never to be released. We're told biblically that demons are creatures. They're very powerful but they're creatures. They're not creators. We're also shown in the Gospels that demonic activity seems to be increased during the time of Jesus. In the Old Testament, there doesn't really seem to be much demon possession. I think that it was probably happening, but it was happening in a way where the demons wanted to just stay in the dark. That's what evil wants to do. And then in the epistles, you don't really see demonic possession either. So it really seems like quite literally all hell is breaking loose against Jesus in the Gospels. We're told biblically that they, demonic activity and demons have some sense of ability to be able to inflict non-believers with disease, promote false doctrine, cause mental difficulties and hinder the growth of the gospel. But we're also told biblically, this is what we studied in 1 John, that though demons can oppress believers, they can never possess believers because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The Holy Spirit cannot be pushed out of you so that a demon can possess you. There's a lot that we could say about demons, but here we are introduced to a man in their synagogue who had an unclean spirit. He had a demon. My question is, how long has this man been attending the synagogue? How long has he been sitting, listening to the teaching of the Pharisees, Sabbath after Sabbath, and totally fine with it? Uh, that tells you how powerless tradition is. Tradition is so powerless that a demon is totally fine sitting in church listening to tradition. It's fine by him. I, I hope and I pray that anyone who comes to CBC, whether it's the preaching the word now, whether it's fellowship with one another, That if they are in any way oppressed by a demon, that they could not sit here and not be stirred or agitated. That something would, ruffle their feathers, so to speak. I don't ever try to offend anybody. I try to do the opposite. I really want to be loving and gracious and compassionate. But if you preach the scriptures and you preach the gospel, the gospel will offend at points. The word of God is a hammer that will shatter the rock, Jeremiah tells us. And so if this demon made its way into this synagogue, I wonder how many people in churches today are oppressed, maybe not by demons, maybe by demons, but by struggles that distract them and snatch the word away. And I just want to say, if you feel that distraction here this morning, if there's some sense in your heart where you feel like something is oppressing me in a way where I am stuck and I cannot get past this, and I cannot be removed in a sense that this is uh, moving out of my heart and I can treasure Christ. I just want to encourage you to hang on and read the rest of this passage. This man, demon-possessed, cries out saying, what business do we have with each other? What business do we have with each other? This is a Hebrew idiom, this is one of my favorite Hebrew idioms. Literally, in, if this were put in Hebrew, uh, it would be, what to us to you? What to us to you? What do we have to do with each other? What's our relationship? What to us to you? What to you to me? What is this? That's what they're saying. This is a common phrase. And this phrase was actually used by Jesus in John chapter two, the wedding at Canaan. You remember when his mom says, hey, could you please help us here? You can do miracles. You can do these things. Can you help us in any way? And Jesus responds with this statement, what to us, to you? What to me, to you? What's our relationship here? You are trying to command me when I am under the command of the Father and I'm waiting on his perfect timing, do the miracles through the power of the Spirit. What's our relationship? It's not one where you tell me what to do. And then she graciously just says to the men, listen to him. Whatever he says to do, listen to him. Submits herself to him. That's what this statement is saying. The demons are saying, what's our relationship here, Jesus? Have you come to destroy us? We know that the end is coming. We know we will be destroyed. We will be judged. But what's our relationship now? What is this relationship, Jesus? Are you going to destroy us now? Notice the demon says, you are Jesus of Nazareth, the Holy One of God. I love that. You are human. You're Jesus of Nazareth. You're the Holy One. You're God. You're 100% human, you're 100% God. This unclean spirit is the only one in this synagogue who actually knows who Jesus is. Everybody else is going, who is this guy? What's he doing? This is amazing. This demon says, oh, I know exactly who he is. The, The very first voice in the gospels to affirm the identity of Jesus is the father. In the gospel of Mark, the very first voice to affirm this is who this man is, is the father. The second voice to affirm Jesus's identity is the devil. Since you are the son of God, turn these rocks into bread. And the third voice to identify the the person of Jesus Christ, the, uh, the nature and the character of who he is, is this demon. He's terrified of Jesus. The demons are the only ones who seem to know who he is. And that's exactly why they're terrified. When you come into contact with the holy God that we sang about, only a holy God, when you come into contact with him, As a sinful creature that will terrify you, and it rightly should. Just like when a a light is shown in the darkness and bugs scurry away, so too when Jesus' brilliance is shown in this synagogue, the demon says, I don't want that. I want to get out of here. They're terrified, they scream, they cry out. They're not attacking Jesus, they're attacking humans. Jesus is attacking the demons, not the humans. And all he has to do is show up and speak. And they start freaking out. You know, sinners should do the same. Sinners should do the same. In contact with the Holy God, we should be terrified. But instead of running away from him, we should run to him, knowing that he is kind to save. He says, I know who you are. I know who you are. I know your name. This is very interesting. Genesis 32, you remember Jacob wrestling with Yahweh wrestling with the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord says, I know your name. And then he renames him. There's an aspect of submission here. When you say, I know who you are. I have control over you. And that's why Jacob says to the angel, can I know your name? I'm going to fight until I know your name so that I have some sense of control over you. And he says, I'm not going to tell you my name. Here that demon saying, look, I know who you are. I want to have some fight against you. I want to have some level of control over you. And that's why it's amazing what Jesus does next. Verse 25, he rebukes him. And he says very simply, two commands, be quiet and come out of him. Be quiet. In our vernacular, that would just be the words, shut up. Which if you're anything like me, I grew up in a household where that was a bad word. It's a bad word in my household. I still don't like saying it. I don't say it. And even when I have to say it, when that's what the text is saying, I don't like saying it. I grew up with friends who, similar to me, weren't allowed to say that. I had a really good friend who would say, uh, (laughs) shusha. When he would try to yell at you and get angry at you, he'd say, shusha. And we'd say, you're not allowed to say that. He said, I didn't say it. I said, shusha. I never said it. Here, Jesus says, be quiet. Shut your mouth. Stop talking. And the demon obeys. The demon obeys. Jesus is saying, I don't need your help in explaining who I am. In fact, if you keep talking about who I am, that's going to make everyone go crazy. Because they're going to know I'm the Holy One. You're a demon. You're explaining truth about who I am. This is going to be confusing. I don't want people to be confused. Just stop talking. And then his second command is, come out. And instantly, the demon comes out. And this is what's fascinating about this. There is no spell. There is no incantation. There's no conjuring up of spiritual power. This is so different than what was happening with exorcisms back in that day. Josephus, who lived in the time of Christ, gives us an actual account of an exorcism that was perfor- per- performed by a man named Eleazar, in demonstration uh, in front of a guy named Vespasian, who's going to become emperor soon. And the man, Eliezer place this is what Josephus writes he placed a ring of secret herbs around the nose of the possessed person and the herbs forced a sneeze which in turn would make the demon leave through the nostrils and so the man Eleazar commanded the demon to come out in the name and power of Solomon and when the man sneezed he said to Vespasian look i performed an exorcism but here there's no herbs No incantation, no appeal to the power of another name, just a simple command which the demons had no choice but to obey. There's no dramatic gestures by Jesus, only words, seven simple words, and this man is liberated. Jesus doesn't appeal to authority outside of himself because he is the authority. If Jesus really is God, If he really is king, he needs to have authority over every realm in the world, physical and supernatural. And so Mark shows us here, this man has authority over the supernatural. This man is king over even the demons. That's why 1 John 3, 8 says, The Son of Man appeared for this purpose, so that he might destroy the works of the devil. And so the demons can shriek all they want, but they have no authority because Jesus is king over them. By the way, this is stunning to me because demonic activity is one explanation for the evil that we see in our world today. And it is into this evil that Jesus says, I will gladly step because I want to rid the world of this. And on the cross, Jesus will ultimately complete the healing work which he's doing here in the synagogue by ridding this man, not just of the power of this demon, but of the power of sin itself. He says, be quiet, come out of him. Verse 26, throwing him into convulsions, the unclean spirit cried out with a loud voice and came out of him. I don't know how much time elapsed between verse 26 and verse 27. There's a man we just saw, just writhing on the ground in convulsions. A demon shrieks and leaves, cloud of dust probably. And everybody's gathered around this man, this crowd of people in the synagogue gathered around just staring. Maybe five seconds, maybe 10 seconds, just what's going to happen next? And the man just pops up to his feet like nothing ever happened. Jesus's power on display and his authority. This is, by the way, the first miracle recorded in the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The first miracle that Jesus ever performed, John chapter 2, turning water into wine, which happened before this, obviously. But this is the very first miracle that's recorded for us in the Synoptic Gospels. And what does Jesus's authority over demons back then mean for us today? It means a lot of things. Even if We would look and say, I'm not demon-possessed or demon-oppressed. There's still application because here's the reality that this verse tells me. There is hope for the worst of us, and there is hope for the worst in us. And Jesus shows up and says, I can take care of both. I can take care of the worst of you, and I can take care of the worst in you. And what's the response? So we have authoritative teaching. We have authoritative command over evil spirits. What's the response? Verse 27 and 28. They were all amazed. This is, in my Bible, the same word, amazed, as it was in verse 22. It's actually a different Greek word. It's a word to be astonished. It has a similar connotation of being struck or dumbfounded. You just don't know what to do with this. You don't know what to make of this. They debated among themselves, saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. That's exactly what they've just seen. He has authoritative teaching and he has authoritative command over the unclean spirits. And immediately the news spread about him everywhere into all of Galilee. But do you notice something odd about those two verses? They're amazed. They even say, He just taught authoritatively and he just commanded authoritatively. But do you notice something missing? They're in awe. They marvel. They're admiring. They're overwhelmed. They have a hard time grasping what they have just experienced, but that does not move them any deeper into a greater affection for Jesus. They're temporarily stunned by him. But they will be eternally lost. We know the majority of these people don't end up following Jesus. So there is a danger. There's a warning in these verses that you can look at Jesus and you can say, I'm stunned by him. I'm in awe of him. I think that he is a better teacher than anyone else that I've heard. And I like listening to him. You can say all those things and still be eternally lost. You can be like a train conductor who says, you know, I've been all over the world and I've been in all these different towns and I've seen all the different sites. When in actuality, all they've done is been on the train that's gone right through the town. They never stopped. They never enjoyed. They never experienced. They're just passing on through. What these verses tell me, and this is an incredible warning to our souls. These verses tell me that our souls can become cauterized by handling truth if we handle it incorrectly. They're amazed, but it does not lead them to any sense of worship, wonder, and discipleship. How do you handle the scriptures incorrectly? Well, you do it exactly the way that the Pharisees did. John chapter 5 Jesus says of the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think that in them, you have eternal life. You think that just by learning things, you get eternal life. This makes the searching of the scriptures only for the purpose of analysis, not for spiritual growth, for affections, for love. The Pharisees would have said their biggest problem is that humanity is ignorant. And so therefore the solution is not redemption, but just grow your knowledge. Just learn. And if you learn, you'll be saved. And so that's what they did with the scriptures. I just need to learn the scriptures because our biggest problem isn't sin. Our biggest problem is ignorance. And so if I learn, I'll be better. They failed to see that their their own sickness and their own sin-stained souls were in need not of more knowledge, but of absolute redemption. Some people, especially in our circles of church and theology, use the Bible still to this day For this very purpose. We want to do away with the discomfort of seeing our sin. So we just, we do a Bible study where we just want to learn more. Let's learn facts about Jesus. Isn't that a cool fact about him? Wow, I never knew that about him. And we walk away no better because we've just gained knowledge about Jesus. And we haven't said, I worship him for who he is. How often do we just exist in that shallowness of thinking? We just we know certain things and we're fine just shallowly knowing certain things. We can even call it deep things, but we just know it. We don't love it. We don't treasure it. We have demonic faith where we believe facts are true. We know facts. We believe facts are true. We even like learning new facts, but we don't love Jesus. This is what C.S. Lewis just so masterfully talked about in his Meditations in a Toolshed. He went into his tool shed and he saw through a crack, a big light of sunbeam coming through. And he looked at the sunbeam. And as he saw the sunbeam, he saw all the little dust particles around it. And he looked at all the dust and he said, wow, this is so cool what I can see because of the sunbeam coming through the the tool shed. This is amazing. And then he said, he stepped into the sunbeam and he looked through the sunbeam. And then he said, all I could see was brilliant light. Often when we, especially doing Bible studies, but also in preaching and teaching and Sunday school, often we just like looking along that sunbeam. Look at all the cool things that we can see. Look at all the cool items. Look at the 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 specks of dust of these theological things. Look at how cool this is. I know this now. And the word of God is saying, don't use me that way. Step into the sunbeam and just be obliterated by the brilliance of Jesus. That's why Charles Spurgeon used to pray in his congregation, O living Christ, make this a living word to me. Thy word is life, but not without the Holy Spirit. I may know this book of thine from beginning to end and repeat it all from Genesis to Revelation. And yet it may be a dead book to me and I may be a dead soul. And then he prays, but Lord be present here. Then I will look up from the book to the Lord, from the precept to him who fulfilled it, from the law to him who honored it, from the threatening of judgment to him who has borne it all for me and from the promise to him in whom it is yes and amen. Jesus in his teaching wasn't concerned about making people experts in the law. He wanted people to love God. If you're here this morning and you would say, you know what? I want to love God, but I don't know how. I don't know where to start. I want to love him more. The bad news is what we sang earlier. I was blinded by my sin and I had no ears to hear your voice. The bad news is that sinners who are naturally hostile to God will never come to him unless their affections are transformed. You need a heart that wants God and you can't make that happen on your own. But you can plead with God to make it happen. Beg him this morning, God, work in me a new heart. Give me new affections. I want to love you. I don't want to just grow my knowledge or, or think that yes, you are awesome and stunning in what you do. I want to love you. I want to love you. We don't need to try harder. We need new hearts all together. But praise the Lord, he's in the business of handing out new hearts left and right. He's in the business of giving new hearts, giving new affections and bringing you safely home. You don't have to stare at the judgment of God for that new soul to be worked in you, that new heart and new affections to be given to you. That can help get you on the road but you need to see the love of Christ, the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. I love the way Richard Sibbs says it. Tenderness of heart is wrought by an apprehension of tenderness and love in Christ. A soft heart is made soft by the blood of Christ. I am sure nothing will melt the heart of man, but the blood of Christ, the passion of our blessed Savior. Only this melts the heart and makes it become tender. Only then will you be transformed by the love of Christ. Only then will you have a a heart that loves to learn, but not for knowledge's sake, but to know more about your Savior. And then and only then will you live differently in telling the world about this one who has authoritative teaching and authoritative command who you gladly and joyfully submit your life to. And then and only then, Can you live out as an ambassador of his authoritative teaching? Can you go to the world and say, I have a teaching for you that you've never heard before? And you'll stun the world. You'll stun them, not just by your teaching, but by your living. We want people around us to be thunderstruck the way that they were here. We want our teaching to be like thunder because our living is like lightning. We want to be a a representation of Christ's living and his words and his reality to the people around us. And so we do it by saying, the disturbance of men and demons by the king has begun. The kingdom is breaking in and the king must have authority in your life. Why? Because he's authoritative in his teaching. He's authoritative in his commands. And he says in Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me. So go in that authority, not to learn more, but to love more. And to be transformed by the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Father, thank you so much for your word. We want to turn our eyes to Christ. Not to simply grow our head knowledge, but as we say all the time at CBC, to grow our heart affections. So let the things of this world become strangely dim in our eyes and in our thinking. In the light of your glory, may we, even as we sing to confirm these truths to our hearts, may we step into the sunbeam of your glory. And as we do, may we be transformed by your grace. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.